At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 36, The Early Cold War in the Middle East. The First Arab-Israeli War. I'm your host, Jeff Hoke. If you haven't already done so, I would recommend you listen to episode 35 and the general overview of the region that I provide in regards to the early Cold War in the Middle East, as this episode builds from that and assumes you have listened to it. Before I begin this episode, I wanted to make some clarifications. This episode is about the First Arab-Israeli War in the political context of the Cold War. It's not a full military history of the conflict. I provide a high-level account of the fighting, but I will not be going into detail, as time does not permit to me to do so. Moreover, although those details are important, I feel they are not critical for the narrative and explanation of the conflict. Second, although I cover it in some detail, this is not a full history of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, nor is it a history of Zionism or the Jewish or Palestinian people. If you're interested in that, I suggest you check out the Martyr Made podcast. Third, my work does have one flaw, which is a lack of secondary source material uh, from the Arab and Palestinian view. Unfortunately, I do not speak Arabic, and so I can't investigate Arab uh, sources on the conflict. However, this is not a problem unique to me, as the Arab government archives on the war still remain classified and closed to to historians, and Arab-speaking historians haven't read through papers and non-government source material to write a political and diplomatic history of the war for an English-speaking audience. If you know of one, please let me know. Therefore, the secondary sources I use to make the episode are from Western and Soviet sources primarily, with very few Arab sources. Obviously, the conflict between the Palestinians and Israelis remains contentious to this day. My objective again in this episode is to understand the conflict in the context of the Cold War. What happened, who thought what, and why. I'm not going to advocate one side or the other and tell you who had a more legally or morally justifiable claim to the land. That's up to you to decide. Now with that out of the way, on with the show. Last episode, we examined the Iran crisis. The other major crisis during the period was the Palestinian crisis and the creation of Israel. A three-sided struggle that pitted the Jews, Palestinians, and British against each other which would encompass the entire region by 1947 as the neighboring Arab states became involved. Traditionally, the story of the first Arab-Israeli war, or the 1948 war, has been framed as a semi-miracle as the Jews, outnumbered and outgunned, squeaked out an underdog victory. As we will see, the traditional narrative overestimates the strength of the Arabs and the weakness of the Jewish community in Palestine. Palestine is a relatively small place, about the size of Vermont. Nevertheless, it is very diverse. Within its 13,734 square miles are to be found the lowest spot on Earth, the Dead Sea, which is 1,292 feet below sea level. 
In sharp contrast, it also has mountains 4,000 feet high. The Negev Desert, with less than one inch of rain a year, and Upper Galilee, with over 42 inches a year. As a whole, the country has a Mediterranean climate, similar to California. Rain falls only during the winter months. Uh, the rest of the year is quite dry. It can be divided roughly into three regions, the coastal plain, mountain plateau, and the desert. The first Jewish Zionist immigrants began to arrive in the early 1880s. They were driven to Palestine with a goal of reestablishing the ancient Jewish state and to escape the anti-Semitism which had erupted in a wave of pogroms across the Tsarist Russia. They were driven on a secular level to recreate a Jewish state as a result of national consciousness or Jewish nationalism. Starting in the late 19th century, various nationalist movements swept across Europe. In 1831, the Poles rose up against Tsarist authority and sought to reestablish their sovereignty. In 1861, the Kingdom of Italy was founded. Germany was reunited in 1871 into the Second Reich. Therefore, many Jewish intellectuals believed that the Jews should themselves have a homeland with their own flag and a country. Palestine, having been the seat of the ancient Jewish state, was the obvious uh, ideal location to the Zionist movement for a new state. The Jewish state had ruled the area from roughly 1200 BC to the 2nd century AD when the Roman Empire suppressed the Jewish people who had rebelled against its rule, destroying the Second Temple and crucifying thousands. Those who had not been crucified were expelled into slavery. By the 19th century, after centuries of Byzantine rule, successive Persian, Arab, Crusader, Arab, and Ottoman conquests of Palestine changed, changed the area considerably, it becoming an impoverished backwater of the Ottoman Empire. But religiously, it maintained an important place in the hearts of Jews, Christians, and Muslims. For the Jews, Palestine was God's promised land to his people. For Christians, Palestine was the place of Jesus' ministry and death. And for the Muslims, Jerusalem was the site for the prophet Muhammad ascended into heaven, the third holiest city in Islam. In 1881, Palestine had about 450,000 Arabs, of whom about 90% were Muslim, with the rest being Christian. 80% of Arabs uh, lived in the rural countryside and villages. Some 25,000 Jews lived in Palestine at the time clustered in and around Jerusalem, most of whom were ultra-Orthodox and poor. It's important to note that these Jews were not nationalist and did not seek the creation of a new Jewish nation. Most Palestinian Arabs at this time saw themselves as subjects of the Ottoman Empire and in belonging to the wider Islamic religious community. No organized Palestinian nationalist movement existed at this point. Nationalism was still a relatively new movement in the Middle East, with small adherents in Damascus, Baghdad, and Beirut. Palestine's rich families who represented the local elite were not unaware of these ideas, but a Palestinian national con consciousness, if you will, had not yet come into existence. The first wave of Zionist immigrants began to arrive between 1882 and 1903 with some 30,000 settlers. Their goal was to establish a core of productive Jewish towns, villages, and farms that would result in a Jewish majority and the establishment of a Jewish state. The Zionists planned on slowly buying land, either piecemeal or in large chunks, from the Ottoman sultan, who was always strapped for cash. But the sultan, despite his money issues, saw Palestine as sacred to Islam and declined to sell. The Zionists naturally kept their objective of establishing a state secret from the Ottoman authorities. 
Slowly, the Zionists purchased land in Palestine, but they struggled to find funds for their project. Most of the Zionists lived in Eastern Europe, and they were relatively poor. The more wealthy Jews in Western Europe and America were on average either not Zionist or opposed to the project. The local Arabs were also opposed to the Zionist immigration to their lands. They saw the Jews as undermining the Arab character of their towns and neighborhoods. They called on the Sultan to halt Jewish immigration to the region and to bar the Jews from buying more land. They were vaguely aware of the plight of the Jews in Russia, but they failed to see that it was their concern or why the Arabs should have to deal with, uh, with the after-effects. Moreover, they failed to buy the Zionist argument that a bunch of Russian-speaking Jews had any right to their land, given a flimsy claim of relation to peoples who lived there 1,600 years ago. Nevertheless, despite their pleas to the Sultan, the Turks failed to stop Jewish immigration to the region and land purchases. The Jews regularly bribed Ottoman officials for immigration permits, land deals, and building rights, and by 1914 there were over 48 Jewish settlements in Palestine with over 65,000 Jewish inhabitants. Despite their growth during this period, they encountered very little organized and or violent resistance from the Arabs. However, 1909 to 1914 saw a steady rise in violence between the two communities. The outbreak of World War I in 1914 temporarily halted the violence between the two communities, but the war fundamentally changed the political landscape of the Middle East, giving impotence to Arab nationalism and advancing the Zionist cause. Palestine during the war was under Ottoman martial law, and both the Arabs and Jews had suffered Turkish confiscation of property and repression. Palestine was on the front lines of the war and served as an Ottoman base for two failed attempts to invade Egypt in 1915 and again in 1916, and was subsequently invaded by the British in 1917. With the British occupation and the war ending, the British promised their Hashemite allies a chunk of Ottoman territory for their support during the war. However, in another secret treaty, they had divided Ottoman territory with the French. They had also issued the Belfort Declaration, which vaguely promised a Jewish homeland. However, it should be noted the Belfort Declaration did call for the protection of the rights of the Arabs, but Zionists saw the declaration as a victory and a step towards the creation of a Jewish homeland. Prime Minister Lloyd George and Belfort had been long allies of the Jewish community in Britain for religious and humanitarian reasons. More importantly, they felt such a move might carry favor with the Jewish leaders in the United States and Russia, which would help Britain in future negotiations after the war. The Hashemite allies didn't appear to be adverse to the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine either. Faisal Husseini even endorsed the Zionist colonization of Palestine. When the dust settled, Faisal was made the king of Iraq, which he and his descendants ruled for the next 40 years. His brother Abdullah was made king of Transjordan, which is to this day ruled by the Hashemites. The vast Hashemite kingdom the British had promised to their Arab allies was not to be. Instead, they were offered divided client states, with the French taking a portion of their promised kingdom. Nevertheless, British and French actions spurred Arab nationalist movements in Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, and Cairo. Palestinian nationalism also received a shot in the arm as the region was cut off from its traditional provincial capitals of Beirut and Damascus. The end of the First World War also meant a return of hostility between the Jewish and Palestinian communities. In April 1920, a pogrom against the Jews in Old Jerusalem broke out as Muslims attacked the city's Jewish residents. 
At the end of three days of rioting, six Jews lay dead with about 200 injured and a handful of women raped. The Jews reacted by creating a militia for self-defense, the Haganah. Despite the violence against the Jewish community, Palestinian Arab society remained fragmented. The better educated and wealthy Palestinians tended to be Christians, whom the British authorities favored with contracts, permits, and jobs, alienating the Muslim majority. Most Palestinians saw Christians as collaborators with the British, or worst, pro-Zionist, and many Palestinian Muslims called for eliminating the Christians after they had gotten rid of the Jews. Beyond religion, family, clan, and regional affinity divided Palestinian society. Commercial rivalry, envy, antagonism often divided families, clans, and villages. The local Bedouins as well, who numbered about 100,000 by late 1940s, were estranged from the wider Palestinian community. These divisions in Palestinian society would continue throughout the rest of the era, right down to the Civil War in 1948, and would play a significant factor in the Palestinian defeat. Indeed, throughout the period of the Mandate, the leading Palestinian families continued to sell the Zionist land despite their nationalist rhetoric. Hundreds of other Arabs cooperated with Zionist intelligence groups. Sporadic violence continued between the Jews and the Arabs throughout the 1920s and early 1930s. The rise of Nazi Germany in 1933 and an uptick of anti-Semitism across Eastern Europe saw Jewish immigration uh, to Palestine explode. The country's Jewish population more than doubled from 175,000 in 1931 to 460,000 in 1939. In 1935, some 62,000 Jewish immigrants arrived. In less than a decade, the Arab portion of the population had declined from 82% to 70%. Both sides tried to work out a compromise, but the Jews insisted on further immigration to the region and their right to establish a homeland which the Arabs found anathema. Both sides did, however, prosper under the mandate. Nonetheless, the Jews did much better. They received much more investment from abroad given their diaspora community and contacts in the West, and the British government awarded them large loans. The net domestic product of the Palestinian community in 1947 was 32 million sterling, whereas the Jewish community was 38.5 million sterling. Most significantly, the Jews had established internal democratic governing institutions, which more or less made establishing a nation in 1947-48 much smoother. The Arabs, in contrast, more heavily relied on British government services. They did establish the Arab Higher Committee, the AHC, to lead their struggle for independence, though. This massive demographic shift and growing disparity between the two communities helped to set off the Arab Revolt of 1936 to 1939. Armed Arab bands began to attack Jewish communities and those traveling along the highway. The AHC declared an open-ended general strike and demanded the end of the British mandate and Palestinian independence. Or at the very least, the British to end Jewish immigration to Palestine. The revolt enjoyed popular support throughout the Arab world. Nevertheless, the the revolt was poorly led and organized. Few Palestinians took part in most of the demonstrations. By October, the death toll had claimed, claimed some 28 British 80 Jews, and 200 Arabs. After five months of protests and violence, Britain relented and began to curb Jewish immigration, but the Palestinians were exhausted. The British arranged for a special commission to research the issue headed by Lord Peel. On July 7, 1937, it issued a 404-page report outlining the history of the conflict and its recommendation to partition the country with the Jews receiving 20%, 
to establish their own state and the Arabs the rest, which would be ceded to the Kingdom of Jordan. The Zionist movement endorsed the two-state solution of the Peel Commission, but Husseini-led Palestinian leadership, along with the Arab states, rejected the recommendations of the commission. Whitehall, however, endorsed the commission, and the Palestinians renewed the revolt in September 1937. The second stage of the revolt, revolt was much more bloodier than the first, lasting until the late summer of 1939. The Arab bands renewed their attacks and were active in the towns and cities as well. Haganah struck back with a wave of terrorism against the Arabs. In October 1937, the British outlawed the AHC and arrested many of its members. The revolt climaxed in the summer of 1938 when the Palestinians briefly captured Old Jerusalem. Facing a coming war with Hitler in in 1938 and the Munich crisis, the British offered the Palestinians statehood in 10 years with severe limitations placed on Jewish immigration. The Palestinian street was overjoyed but its leaders refused to accept the British offer. They demanded full cessation of Jewish immigration and an immediate independence. In response, the British won on the offensive hard. Between October 1938 and April 1939, they captured the rebel strongholds in the hill country and virtually annihilated the Arab bands after coercing much of the rural population into collaborating with them. Dozens of homes were demolished, crops were burned, and rebels and their accomplices were hanged. Thousands of others were arrested and locked away. They closed the northern border with a fence and a landmine field. In the countryside, they constructed hundreds of small reinforced concrete forts that secured towns and road junctions. In the end, the Arab revolt ended in an unmitigated defeat and ripped the heart out of the young Palestinian movement. Between three to 6,000 Arabs had lost their lives in the struggle. Thousands more fled into exile or were jailed. Their leadership was decimated, and many more had become disillusioned or frightened by what had happened and renounced politics. The failure of the Arab revolt would have long-term consequences for the Palestinians, making them even weaker and more reliant on the British mandate. When the Civil War began in 1947, the Palestinians were still dealing with the effects of the defeat. With the outbreak of World War II in 1939, the triangular conflict between the Jews, Palestinians, and British was put on hold although official immigration to Palestine was sharply curtailed by the British. Thousands of Jews joined the British army to participate in the fight against the Nazis, their mortal enemy. Palestine, awash in British troops, became a a giant rear area base to the British 8th Army in Egypt, fighting against the Italians and German Africa Corps. The Palestinians, still licking their wounds in revolt, hoped for a Nazi victory, as did most of the Arab world. World War II, like World War I, though, would strengthen both the Arab nationalist movement and Zionism. Thousands of Jews during the war received combat experience in the British, Soviet, and Polish forces, skills and training that would prove invaluable during the Israeli War of Independence. The Holocaust also breathed new life into the Zionist movement. Rich Jews in Western Europe and America were willing now to donate considerable funds. The Holocaust also won the Jewish people, and by extension the Zionist movement, the sympathy of the international community. The Jewish community of those looking to leave Europe had also grown, as some 250,000 Jews after the war were living in displaced person camps in Western Europe alone. Palestine, along with the United States, Canada, Australia, had become a prime destination for these people. In the United States, the Jews had also become a key constituency. Like in the rest of the world as well, the Jews had sympathy of the American people as a result of the Holocaust. The Holocaust had also energized and mobilized the Jewish community in America like never before. 
This community was very influential and was wealthy with connections on Wall Street and in Washington. For the Palestinians, very little politically changed during the war, though their standard of living grew as a result of the war. Very few had signed up for service with the British in contrast to their Jewish neighbors, which would leave them at a disadvantage in the coming conflict. Moreover, unlike the Jewish Haganah, the Arabs had no comparative militia or paramilitary force. Most of their leadership was still living in exile as well. In 1943, though, it was clear the Allies would win the war, and in 1944, the Palestinians created a new political party, the Palestine Arab Party, whose immediate goal was Palestinian independence and the cessation of Jewish immigration. These demands were backed by the new Arab League as well in 1945. The Arab League was also instrumental in reestablishing the AHC in Palestine. For the British, the end of the war meant the loss of their Jewish allies. The Haganah began to organize illegal shipments of Jews once again from Eastern Europe to Palestine. Many of these ships were intercepted by the Royal Navy, with their passengers interned in camps in Cyprus or sent back to Europe. But other ships got got through, and between August 1945 and May 1948, some 70,000 illegal immigrants landed in Palestine. In response, Arab mobs rioted across the Middle East and North Africa, attacking Jews and destroying their shops and homes. The Haganah, who had been stealing and purchasing arms over the years, also renewed its attack against the British. The British responded with a two-week offensive to wipe out the Haganah, searching Jewish towns and villages for arms and men. They even occupied the Jewish agency building in Jerusalem. Haganah and another Israeli terrorist art group, IZL, and the Stern Gang responded with a wave of terrorist uh, attacks against the British, notably bombing the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, killing 91 British, Arabs, and Jews. Violence between the British and the Jews quickly spiraled out of control with provocations and reprisals by both sides. Britain had 100,000 troops in Palestine, five times what they had during the Arab Revolt, but were no closer to achieving order. In 1946, Zionist terrorists attacked the British embassy in Rome and bombed British troops stationed in Germany. The violence was spreading to Britain as well. The Stern Gang and others attempted to attack London, and violence broke out in Manchester, London, Liverpool, and Newcastle against the Jews. Moreover, given the the backdrop of the recent Holocaust, it made for bad optics, and Britain was coming under pressure from the Americans for their handling of the situation a relationship that Britain couldn't afford to strain at the moment given America's economic and military support. The British attempted two rounds of talks between the Jews and Arabs and themselves from September 1946 to February 1947, but they ended in deadlock. The Jews demanded a state, and the Palestinians refused to give them any piece of their land to create one. For the British, too, to endorse partition would infuriate the the Arab world. To oppose it and to leave the Jews to their fate in Palestine— would be bad optically in the wake of the Holocaust, as the Palestinian leadership were vague about what would happen to the Jews in an independent Palestine, and the British feared a massacre of the Jewish people. Moreover, not creating a Jewish state more than likely would have exacerbated the terrorist campaign of the Zionists against the British. Therefore, the British were in a lose-lose situation. On February the 14th, 1947, They decided to wash their hands of the whole ordeal and to hand the Palestine issue over to the United Nations to figure out. The British figured that in the long run, the Jews would lose at the UN or on the battlefield, and that Britain could be instrumental in helping to build a federated Arab state. They had already helped to establish the Arab League. 
This new pan-Arab state linked to the British Commonwealth via would ensure Great Britain's economic and political influence in the region for decades to come. The Arabs were happy with this move by the British to take the matter to the UN. With five states in the General Assembly and a handful of other Islamic states in the world, they expected an easy victory. However, they failed to take into consideration the international community's sympathy for the Jewish people in the aftermath of the Holocaust and the significance of the Soviet Union. The United Nations formed a committee to investigate the matter. The committee was mixed between pro-Arab ambassadors such as India, Iran, Australia, and Holland, and pro-Zionist states like the United States, Sweden, Canada, Guatemala, and Uruguay. The committee consulted widely with the Europeans, Americans, and the nations of the Middle East. The AHC boycotted the UN's visit to Palestine, refusing to speak with them. From their perspective, why should they need to justify the existence of their state and their ancestral lands? The members were, however, warmly welcomed by the Jewish communities they were sent to meet. The Zionists wined and dined its members. From the beginning, there was a general agreement that the UN should terminate the mandate, and by August, a clear majority believed in the two-state solution. They came to the conclusion that compromise between the two groups was unachievable. There being no alternative, the committee concluded that partition was the course to take and that the British mandate would be unsustainable. Jerusalem, however, would remain an international trusteeship. The American State Department and the Department of Defense fiercely opposed the partition plan. They felt that with the British withdrawal, the region would descend into a state of anarchy. The Arabs would certainly crush the Jews, and the American military would be compelled to intervene by the American public to stop a massacre. The U.S. military at this point was down to less than a million men, and they lacked the forces for a long-term intervention. The DOD estimated that such an operation would require at least 160,000 troops. Moreover, the DOD worried that such an action might provoke some type of Soviet response. The State Department also feared that the decision to recognize a Jewish state in the Middle East would ru ruin the United States' image in the region. They feared that Arab states would flock to the Soviet Union. The King of Saudi Arabia had threatened economic sanctions against the West for such a move. But in historical uh, hindsight, it was a bluff at this point. Saudi Arabia only supplied some 6% of the world's oil, and the U.S. was still self-sufficient. In the end, he would have hurt himself more. Nevertheless, President Truman felt compelled to back the decision of the committee's partition proposal for two reasons. For one, Truman felt that the U.S. had to be committed to the success of the United Nations. If the United States undermined the U.N.'s recommendations, they would be damaging the entire U.N. project they had worked so hard to build. The second reason was domestic. Truman had said he didn't care about the Jews in 1944 and 1946, but with a close election on the line in 1948, he was keen to win their 8 million votes. More importantly, in the vagaries of the American Electoral College, most Jews lived in key battleground states like New York, New Jersey, and Illinois, states that could tip the election in either direction. Truman's opponent, New York Governor Dewey, was very popular with the Jewish community and had backed a Jewish state. Truman not backing the Zionist movement might very well have cost Truman to lose the election. The Soviet Union remained the one wild card. Many assumed the Soviets would back the Arabs given Stalin's anti-Semitism and the opportunity for the Soviets to score points with the Arab world. Moscow, however, had avoided expressing any clear policy towards Palestine prior to 1947. But the Soviets surprised everyone, especially the Americans, when they endorsed the committee's proposal for two states. It remains not entirely clear why Stalin and the Soviets chose to back the creation of Israel, 
but many now believe Stalin saw it as an opportunity to undermine British influence in the region. The Soviets also might have saw the move as a way to split Britain and America. They saw it as an opportunity to reduce and or deflect tensions between the U.S. and Soviet Union. The Soviets also saw the opportunity as a way of gaining influence with progressive Jews in the West. However, many Soviets believed that Israel would eventually become an American ally, given their proximity to Western Europe and their need for aid from the United States, which had much greater influence in the region. On November the 29th, the UN General Assembly voted 33 to 13 with 10 abstentions in favor of the partition resolution, with the U.S., Soviet Union, most of Europe, and the British Commonwealth backing partition. Great Britain abstained. A wave of joy quickly spread through the 650,000 Jews living in Palestine. Following the adoption of the partition resolution at the United Nations, Palestine exploded into violence. On November the 30th, 1947, fighting broke out with an Arab ambush on a Jewish bus. On December the 1st, the AHC declared a three-day general strike in response to the UN resolution. On December the 2nd, a large Arab mob descended on Jerusalem with clubs and knives attacking Jews and Jewish shops. Small Haganah units fired into the mob indiscriminately. British police looked on and did nothing with a few joining in the looting. Other police helped to evacuate the Jewish wounded and eventually the rioting fizzled out. Many thought the violence like the sporadic violence of the past would blow over and the two communities would form their own states and avoid war. But this was not to be the case. The war can be broken into two phases, a civil war which started on November the 30th, 1947 and lasted until May 1948 between the Jews and the Palestinians and a war between the new nation of Israel and its Arab neighbors from May 1947 until July 1949. The war between the Jews and the Palestinians was marked by guerrilla warfare and terrorism by both sides. The fighting was characterized by continuous small units, small arms fighting in towns and ambushes along the roadside. Arab bands attacked Jewish settlements, and Haganah occasionally retaliated. There were no clear lines as the country was a patchwork of Arab and Jewish communities, and some areas were mixed. From the end of November until early March, the Palestinians held the initiative with the Haganah on the defensive. Much of the fighting was relegated to areas with a Jewish majority population earmarked for Jewish statehood. Almost no fighting occurred in the areas with majority Arab population. Technically speaking, the British were still responsible for security in the country until May, the official end of the mandate, but progressively failed to intervene as their forces withdrew and the date for independence approached, and throughout the war, both sides accused Britain of favoring the other. London did believe that the Arabs would win and that they wanted to retain some credit with the Arab world for hopes of future economic opportunities. Yet at the same time, Britain didn't want to strain ties with the Americans, who were more pro-Zionist, so they couldn't appear to, be, to favor the Arabs too much. London also wanted to keep British casualties to a minimum, and leaving Palestine with as little loss to influence and prestige in the Middle East as possible. This was a difficult policy to implement, as keeping order and maintaining a pro-Arab tilt were not always complementary policies, as British officers and diplomats were often just as confused about their government's position as the Arabs and Jews. Throughout the Civil War, both sides took into account the British positions and possible reactions to their military moves. In practice, the British intervened in the fight quite frequently until March and occasionally in April. In all, 174 British soldiers were killed with 419 wounded. Moreover, the, British con the continued British presence favored the Jews more than it did the Arabs, as the Jews were on the defensive the first part of the fighting. British troops helped to defend besieged Jewish settlements and convoys.
On other occasions, the British were outright anti-Semitic, unarming Haganah members and handing them over to the Arab mobs for street justice. The Haganah held back from launching many of major offenses until the British had departed out of fear of British intervention. The British military presence also deterred any Palestine Arab neighbors from intervening in the war as well. The British did, however, quietly assist both sides in taking over areas where they were demographically dominant in, leaving them buildings, vehicles, and small arms. On paper, the Palestinians enjoyed a a rough 2-to-1 population advantage over the Jews, with some 1.2 million Arabs versus some 650,000 Jews. But this number is misleading, as we pointed out before. Palestinian society was highly fractured. Many Palestinians didn't become involved in the fighting, and few towns and villages openly sided with the Israelis. The Arabs also lacked funds. The Palestinian elite, many of whom were Christian, were hesitant about donating their money in the cause of independence. The Jewish community, in contrast, by the late 1940s was one of the most politically conscious and organized communities in the world as a result of the Holocaust. It was also highly homogeneous in Palestine, with close to 90% of its members being Eastern European Jews, and it was 90% secular, with only some 3% ultra-Orthodox Jews. The Palestinians did enjoy the advantage of the high ground, whereas the Jews principally lived in the lowlands. Moreover, they were supported by their neighboring Arab states, which could supply volunteers, supplies, and heavy and safe havens. The Jewish diaspora, in contrast, were, was hundreds or thousands of miles away and had to get through a British blockade. The Jews, on the other hand, were heavily armed, more organized, and had greater morale, better command and control, and most of its fighters had military experience. They had more money and their own makeshift arms production. From 1944 to 1946, Haganah representatives had purchased machine tools in the West and brought them back to Palestine to create small arms factories. By the end of 1947, they were producing Sten guns, mortars, grenades, and bullets. In all, during the conflict, they produced some 15,468 Sten guns, 200,000 grenades, 125 mortars, and some 50 million rounds of ammunition. They also had large stockpiles of small arms, machine guns, mortars, and anti-tank guns. Haganah agents also scoured the globe for surplus military goods, and with the end of World War II, the world was awash in them. Haganah agents and Zionists bought arms and ammunition from around the world, starting in the mid-1940s, setting up dummy companies and smuggling their arms into Palestine. France helped with the sale of some 30 65mm guns, 12 120mm mortars, and 75mm anti-tank guns, as well as 10 H-35 Hotchkiss light tanks. Switzerland sold them 20mm anti-aircraft guns as well. Many of the arms, though, didn't make it into Palestine as a result of the 1947 UN uh, arms embargo. The Jews also had a disproportionate number of military-age men. During the 1930s and 1940s, the Zionist leadership had prioritized legal and illegal immigration of military-age men. As well, some 4,000 volunteers and mercenaries came to fight on the Israeli side as well many of whom had served with the Allies in World War II. Most came from North America and South Africa. The Jewish and Palestinian soldiers were very different as well. Many of the Jews were literate, coming from industrial societies in Eastern and Central Europe. The Palestinians, in contrast, were mainly poor, illiterate, and largely came from an agricultural background. To many Palestinians, the ideas of Palestinian statehood were vague abstractions. The Jews started the war with one large militia, the Haganah, and two small terrorist organizations, IZL and LHI, or the Stern Gang. 
having roughly 8,500 fighters. This force would become the IDF in 1948. During the Civil War, these three forces occasionally coordinated their efforts, but were separate entities until June 1948. The Haganah formed the base of the Jewish forces with some 5,000 members, a skeleton general staff, and the outlines of an army. Most of its units were town and village militias. After the reforms of May 1948 and the creation of the IDF, this force came to be 12 brigades, 3 commando or palma, and 2 armored brigades. The Haganah was composed of both men and women, some of whom were exceptionally young, 15 and 16 years old. Women had received training along with the men and participated in the fighting for the first six months of the war. After this, they were reassigned clerical duties uh, and in the rear area. My sources didn't mention why this decision was taken. Despite their large stockpile of small arms, they lacked artillery and tanks. The armored units consisted of makeshift armored cars, essentially trucks with armored plating on them. They had no combat aircraft and only a few spotter planes. They were also short of ammunition, as demand always outstripped what could be smuggled in and produced. Despite Palestine's location in the Arab world, relatively very few Arabs traveled to Palestine to fight jihad. Despite all the rhetoric in the protests and in the streets, it was one thing to break a shop window in Damascus or Cairo, and quite another to pick up a rifle and to fight, in the, well, fight the well-armed Haganah in the streets of Jerusalem or the hills of the West Bank. In the end, only some six to 8,000 Arabs actually traveled to Palestine to take part in the fighting. Most of these volunteers fought with the Arab Liberation Army and contingents organized by the Muslim Brotherhood. However, many former British military and police officers joined the Arab side in the fighting. Many Usashe or fascist Bosnians also traveled to Palestine to side with the Arabs, as did a handful of former German Wehrmacht and SS officers. The Palestinians, in contrast to the Jews, had no centrally organized militia. Most of the militia operated separately and defended their local village or town. Therefore, many of the militia never saw any action as their homes and villages were bypassed or not attacked. Unlike the Viet Minh, the Palestinians never issued a general call to arms. The size of the militias varied greatly from as little as 10 to 100 men, with a diverse makeup of weapons and a small amounts of ammunition. Only loosely organized armed bands took the offensive to the Jews in the early months of the war. Each band had between two to 500 men. They moved about the countryside and quartered in Arab villages. Some uh, villages, however, refused to host them for fear of Jewish retribution. The bands were lightly armed with at best a medium machine gun or a mortar. Some of the bands fought bravely, but they couldn't coordinate attacks and rarely cooperated with one another. On average, these men had very little experience except for those who had participated in the Arab Revolt of 1936-1939. The Haganah, again in contrast, had many men with military service in World War II or in the Arab Revolt. The best unit in the Civil War was the Arab Liberation Army, or ALA, consisting mainly of Iraqi, Syrian, and Palestinian Arabs trained by the Syrian army in the months leading up to the war. At its height in October 1948, it had about 5,000 men, led by former Arab and Bosnian military officers. They were equipped with a diverse array of small arms and light weapons, with a number of 75mm and 105mm artillery, although they lacked ammunition. They also had a handful of obsolete armored cars. Militia, armed bands, and the ALA all suffered from supply issues, running short of food, uh, water, ammunition. They were, for the most part, dependent on outside help. What supplies did arrive were often of different types and calibers, and many of the rifles were old or broken. More critical than the supply problem was the lack of a command and control. 
there were too many diverse Arab units with no supreme command or plan of operations. As the civil war raged in Palestine, Truman came under political pressure to send in American troops to restore order. But Truman refused to mobilize American forces for an intervention in Palestine. The DOD and the State Department still feared a Jewish massacre. They felt that the president was risking American diplomatic standing and flirting with a military danger all to score points with Jewish American voters. On March the 25th, more or less behind the president's back, the State Department proposed a substitute plan for partition at the UN called trusteeship, which Truman read about in the newspapers the next morning. Jewish Americans were upset about the administration's about face. Truman had an egg on his face, and Forrestal and Marshall tried to convince him to abandon support for partition. With the violence only escalating, Truman urged the British to stay, even if for just a few more weeks. But the British were determined to leave. Truman contemplated the introduction of American forces, but the DOD fought against the idea. Nevertheless, events in Palestine rendered the debate mute as Israeli forces had gone over to the offensive, partly as they realized the United States might back away from partition if it looked as though the Jews would lose. The new offensive was successful. The Haganah broke the siege of Jerusalem, ensuring their control of the western half of the city, and they gained control of Haifa, the key port of the region. At this stage, it was clear that Israel would be established. What remained to be decided was if the U.S. would recognize the new state. Marshall and Forrestal wanted to hold off on recognition, but Truman wanted to beat Stalin and recognize Israel before the Soviets did. The State Department and the DOD were again incensed that Truman wanted to score cheap political points with Jewish voters versus U.S. political uh, interests in the Middle East. Recognition totally ran counter to the U.S. efforts at the U.N. to win a truce between the two sides. In the end, though, with Soviet recognition of uh, Israel on May the 17th, Many of the State Department's and the DOD's fears were neutralized. The U.S. didn't lose its standing in the region, nor did states in the region immediately flock to the Soviet banner. The Soviets also went way beyond recognizing Israel. They proceeded to arm them through their client state of Czechoslovakia, totally bypassing the U.N. arms embargo. The Soviets chose to smuggle the weapons through the Czechoslovakia to have deniability to protect what little influence and interest they had in the Arab world. The Civil War ended with the complete destruction of what little military capability the Palestinians had and the complete shattering of their society. Many Palestinians ended the war believing they would lose the Civil War, but their neighboring Arab uh, armies would liberate them in the end. This resulted in hundreds of thousands of Palestinians leaving their homes and evacuating to their neighboring countries. Many assumed they would be home in a few months, but some 70 years later, they are still fighting for the right to return to their homes and businesses. The Palestinians also economically suffered from the war. The loss of the access to the Jewish economy in Palestine meant many Palestinians couldn't go to work. Many Arab farmers couldn't get their goods to Jewish markets either. Civilians like the soldiers and terrorists suffered from supply issues. The Jewish struggled with supply issues as well. Arab ambushes on convoys between December 1947 and March 1948 inflicted heavy casualties on the Jews, especially as they attempted to supply isolated outposts. Convoy duty tied down a considerable portion of the Haganah. In the end, the Jews struggled more with supply as most Jews were located in the towns and cities, and most Arabs lived in agricultural villages and farms. Things started to turn around in April as shipments from Czechoslovakia began to arrive with rifles, MG-34 machine guns, millions of bullets, and even ME-109 fighter planes. Before this, the Haganah units had to borrow weapons from each other for specific operations. 
As you can imagine, units, especially local militias, were always nervous about lending away their weapons for fear of being attacked when they weren't on hand. Now, with a stockpile of weapons and much more ammunition available, it made it much more easier to launch offensive operations. Up until this point, they had captured very little territory that was majority Arab. The Haganah moved to crush the ALA and armed bands of Arabs. The Palestinians were incapable of dealing with this tempo of large-scale attacks and swiftly collapsed. The Israelis secured the main roads and deployed along the UN-mandated borders to prepare for the coming invasion of the Arab League armies. The Jewish victory of the Palestinians ensured the two-state solution and the continuing backing of the United States at the United Nations. Though more or less defeated, the Palestinians continued to support the ALA and other Arab forces hold on Central Galilee for the rest of the conflict. I want to take a quick break here and thank you for listening to the show and our Patreon supporters and one-time PayPal contributors. You guys are the oil that keeps this podcast going. If you enjoy topics such as these which explore the Cold War roots of present-day conflicts like this episode about the first Arab-Israeli war or our episode that explored the first Indian and Pakistan war over Kashmir, please support us through Patreon at the $5 level or whatever amount you feel is appropriate. If you want to give us a, a one-time donation or a dollar in my tip jar for an episode well done, please check out PayPal uh, on, on the website. Again, you can find both the link to Patreon and PayPal on our website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com. If you're tired of me panhandling on your iPhone or device like some homeless historian outside of your office, as a Patreon supporter, you can get our commercial-free episodes, and you won't have to listen to me uh, anymore begging for money. Now, without further interruption, let's get back to the show. Although the Arab states had publicly threatened to liberate Palestine from the Jews, their leaderships knew, knew their militaries weren't ready for war. Many privately hoped that the Palestinians would win, and they wouldn't have to back their rhetoric with deeds. The Arab states, minus Jordan, had done almost nothing to prepare for war. Many generals assumed other Arab states might go to war, but his own country would sit the conflict out. The Arab states were themselves relatively young states, most having achieved or regained their independence only within the past few years. Britain and France had established their armies as internal security forces meant to help put down rebellions and provide security, not engage other armies in head-to-head -head battles. None of these armies, minus the Jordanian, had any combat experience either. Jordan's Arab Legion had worked with the British in Iraq and Syria in World War II. Only in 1945-1946 did the British initiate some reforms as a result of the early Cold War and the potential danger of Soviet intervention. Nevertheless, lack of funds and Arab suspicion of the British meant the plan didn't really get that far off the ground. Only the Jordanian army, where the British had good relations with the king, had made any real reforms. Most of the armies were short of arms and ammunition and lacking training. They also lacked any type of real intelligence on the Israeli military forces, nor did they have logistical capacity to launch sustained offensives far beyond their bases of support. The British and the Americans' arms embargo to the Middle East also severely hurt them. The British and the Americans were their primary arms suppliers. Unlike the Israelis with the Czechs, they had no alternative source of weapons. Moreover, the Arabs had not expected the arms embargo and had failed to stockpile ammunition and spare parts. Nor did they have contacts with arms dealers like the Israelis. Some Arab generals thought the war would be a walkover, though. With so many armies arrayed against Israel, how could they lose? They called the operation a parade without the risks, and they would be in Tel Aviv in two weeks. 
Going into the war, the Arabs lacked a unified command structure or similar secondary political aims. All the Arab states agreed that Israel should not be established as a state, but beyond that, they had very little agreement. Egypt and Iraq saw it partly as a war to rid the region of British influence. Jordan viewed the war as an opportunity to expand their kingdom. Syria had not forgotten Palestine had been part of its territory under the Ottoman Empire. Egypt, the largest Arab state, wrestled with Jordan over leadership of the coalition as they didn't want to see Palestine become a part of Jordan. Jordan had secretly met with the Jews as well, and the king had offered his protection to the Jewish people if they supported an annexation of Palestine to the Jordan and refrained from declaring a Jewish state. The Jews, of course, flatly rejected this offer. Jordan and Saudi Arabia were also suspicious of each other, as the Hashemites held claim to Mecca and Medina, the heart of Ibn Sud's kingdom, and Saudi Arabia backed the leadership of Egypt in the coalition. Many of the other governments saw the war as a necessary evil to placate their domestic constituents. The politicians, the demagogues, and the press, and the mob were uh, deciding defense policy, not the generals, who warned against the dangers and the shortcomings of their armies they commanded. They were either drowned out in the calls for war or denounced as traitors. From late 1947 to mid-May 1948, the streets of Cairo, Alexandria, Beirut, Damascus, and Baghdad were alive with noisy pro-war demonstrations fueled by the, in part by the government and the press. The Arab chiefs of staff met in Damascus to iron out a plan of attack, but the plan was vetoed by the King of Jordan. The plan had called on the Arab Legion to push west with the Iraqi army to take Haifa, but Abdullah thought his army would be, suffer too many casualties in such a maneuver, thus weakening his regime in the long run. When the war did break out on May the 15th, the Arabs only had a vague plan for the war. The plan, which was drawn up by a captain in the Jordanian army, called for an 11-day campaign. The Lebanese, in theory, would push down from the north with the Syrians. In the east, the Jordanians, backed by the Iraqis, would capture Jerusalem, and in the south, the Egyptians would push north along the coast road and capture Tel Aviv, thus overwhelming the Jewish defenders. The Arabs left large numbers of their troops at home to guard against minorities such as Kurds in Iraq or political opponents. However, they did on average send their best units to the fight. As the invasion began, the Arabs at first held the initiative as they could choose where and when they would attack. Attacking on multiple fronts at once also compounded their initial advantages. Moreover, they still held most of the high ground, which was held by Palestinians. They also had a preponderance of artillery, armor, and aircraft when the war began. Unlike the Jews, though, the Arabs were not fighting for their perceived national survival. They were keen on defeating what they saw as Jewish imperialists and in helping to liberate the Palestinian people. But existentially, Israel did not threaten the existence of Iraq, Egypt, or Syria. In all, the Arabs fielded an army of about 20,000 men for the invasion and deployed another 8,000 troops during the course of the early war. Contingents also arrived from Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Sudan, and Morocco, with an estimated force of 50,000 by July 1948 and 68,000 by mid-October. The most powerful of the Arab armies was the Jordanian Arab Legion, which we mentioned earlier. Composed of 9,000 troops, it was professional and had seen action in World War II. It was commanded by British officers and NCOs, seasoned from their time in the British Army, or experienced mercenaries. The Egyptian army consisted of some 5,500 men with about 30 tanks, several dozen armored cars, and some half-tracks. 30 25-pounder guns with roughly 24 older 18-pounders and 3.7 and 4.5-inch howitzers. 
Most of its troops were armed with kit that dated from the 1930s, as the British selected not to modernize their force in the 1940s, given their questionable loyalties. The Air Force consisted of Spitfires and converted C-47 bombers, but they lacked pilots, ground crews, and spare parts. The Iraqi army, like the Egyptian, was not modernized by the British, and much of their equipment dated from the 1930s. They deployed some 4,500 men for the invasion, with about 120 armored cars, a mix of 25-pounder and obsolete howitzers. Much of their artillery ammunition was old, dating from the First World War, although they had a stockpile of 18,000 rounds for the 25-pounders. They also had some 17-pounder anti-tank guns and anti-aircraft guns. The Air Force consisted of converted Ansun transports and Gladiator fighter bombers. The Iraqi army also had to battle logistical issues as it had to transport reinforcements and supplies along a long supply train starting from Iraq and Baghdad. The Syrians had about 10,000 troops on paper, but most of these men lacked arms or training. In reality, they had about 2,000 with a company of light obsolete Renault 35-39 tanks and two companies of armored cars. The troops were equipped mostly with the French 1886 Labelle rifle, an obsolete rifle dating from before the First World War. Few others were armed with K-98s and infields. The Syrians also suffered from severe shortages of ammunition. The Air Force consisted of Harvard trainers converted into fighters and bombers. The Lebanese, given their Maronite, Shiite, and Christian populations, were more hesitant to go to war with Israel. They had always had good relations with the Jewish community and saw them as potential allies in the Sea of Sunni Islam. Nevertheless, they didn't wish to risk their place in the Arab League, so they went along with the war, but chose not to participate in the early invasion and went on the defensive. They also recognized that their army was too small and ill-equipped to participate effectively in the war. They did, however, provide artillery fire and offer a base of support to the ALA, providing several hundred volunteers and armored cars along with logistical support. They did, however, later intervene in the fighting. The Israelis, in contrast to the Arabs, had a clear plan. Survive the Arab onslaught, gain additional territory when feasible, and to reduce the numbers of Arabs that would be living in their country. The Israeli troops were highly motivated, dug in, and fighting for their homes and national survival. Their troops were also battle-hardened in comparison to most of the Arab forces, minus the Jordanians. They had short internal lines of supply and communication, and were on average better equipped. Israel did lack heavy arms, though. It had managed to steal and buy tanks, half-tracks, and armored cars from the British as they departed, along with some artillery and anti-aircraft guns. They also did have about 700 mortars to make up for their lack of artillery. Checkmate ME-109s fighter planes also started to arrive in June, giving the Israelis a small air force. Despite their smaller population, in the end, the Israelis fielded more men than the Arabs. By mid-July 1948, they overtook them with 65,000 troops, and by January 1949, they had fielded 108,000, some 13% of its population. As the invasion commenced, once again, Jerusalem, with its large community of Jews, became the focal point for the Israeli government. The city was the main objective of the Arab Legion, and heavy fighting broke out in the city and the surrounding suburbs for the city. The fighting there more or less developed into a stalemate as the Jews held West Jerusalem and the Arabs the eastern part of the city, including the Old City. Both the Israelis and the Arabs suffered heavy casualties as the fighting for the city continued. Jordan and its patrons in London became concerned that the Arab Legion may well have been wiped out in the fighting, or that the IDF would encircle and destroy the Legion. 
The Legion could ill afford to replace its losses, and it was running desperately low on ammunition and water, whereas the size and strength of the IDF grew with each passing week. The Syrian army was very Victorian in its approach to fighting. They would generally fight in the morning, take a siesta at around noon, and at 8 p.m. turn in for the night. Nevertheless, despite stubborn Jewish resistance from the kibbutz, the Syrians gained a toehold west of the Jordan before the June ceasefire. When the Egyptian army invaded, they went into battle without sufficient food, ammunition, or spare parts. The officers and men were poorly trained. The Egyptians advanced up the coast road fighting in fierce firefights to take Jewish kibbutz settlements. In the end, the Egyptians, lacking the necessary men and supplies, became strung out along the coastal highway and bogged down, no, no longer capable of offensive operations, 18 miles short of Tel Aviv. The Egyptians did, however, quickly win air superiority, attacking Tel Aviv, killing civilians, and destroying the central bus terminal. But Israeli anti-aircraft gunfire made the Spitfires pay a heavy price, and by the end of May, the Egyptian Air Force was essentially neutralized. The Israelis as well bombed Gaza with civilian converted aircraft, killing some 55 people. On June the 11th, uh, after weeks of shuttle diplomacy, the first truce came into effect, and a special mediator, Count Folk Bernadetti, was appointed to assure the safety of the holy places and to safeguard the safety of the population as well as promoting a peaceful end of the conflict. Both the Arabs and Israelis needed to regroup. Both sides were exhausted and running low on ammunition. Bernadette tried to extend the truce and achieve a political settlement, but ultimately failed. The British were especially worried that the Arab armies stood on the edge of defeat, an Arab defeat that would further weaken British influence in the region as it had trained, armed, and advised the Arab armies, especially the Jordanian. Despite the Israeli frustration of the Arab invasion and its reaching its primary objectives, Jerusalem, with its 100,000 Jewish inhabitants, remained in a precarious situation given its semi-encircled position, which was running low on supplies and still faced the Arab Legion, the best Arab army. The Arabs were in no position domestically, though, to end the war. Their respective populations had been told that the, by the media that their forces were on the verge of victory. If they quit now, they would be vilified as weak, cowards, and or traitors. The truce would eventually hold for four weeks until July the 8th. Both sides did, however, violate the terms of the truce. The Israelis continued to smuggle in immigrants, supplies, ammunition, and arms, and move fresh troops into defensive positions. The Arabs, in violation of the agreement, reinforced their lines with fresh units and by preventing the resupply of isolated Israeli outposts. During this period, the IDF was substantially resupplied with arms and supplies from Czechoslovakia and through arms dealers in the U.S. and Western Europe. By the end of the truce, they had received some 25,000 rifles, 5,000 machine guns, 50 million rounds of ammunition, 30 Swiss 20-millimeter cannons, a number of German Krupp 75-millimeter guns, and 25 ME-109s, which was followed by a shipment of Spitfires and three B-17s. The truce was supposed to end July the 9th, but hoping to catch the Israelis off guard, the Egyptians renewed their offensive a day early. The Israelis, on July the 9th, also launched an offensive of their own on all three fronts, which they hoped would decisively win the war, but failed to do so. The Egyptians once more tried to capture additional Jewish communities moving up the coast, but failed to take much more ground at high cost, losing 700 men and 1,000 wounded. The Israelis, meanwhile, took Ramallah, but uh, failed in an attempt to take East Jerusalem. On July the 18th, the second truce of the conflict went into effect after intense diplomatic efforts at the United Nations. On the 16th of September, Bernadette 
uh, proposed a new partition plan for Palestine, which the neg- uh, in which the Negev would be divided between Jordan and Egypt, and Jordan would annex Lydia and Ramallah. Uh, there would be a Jewish state in the, the whole of Galilee. Uh, Jerusalem would be internationalized with municipal autonomy for the city's Jewish and Arab inhabitants. The port of Haifa would be fr- a free port, and Lydia Airport would be a free airport. All Palestinian refugees would be granted the right of return, and those who chose not to return uh, would be compensated for lost property. The UN would control and regulate Jewish immigration. The plan was rejected by both sides, and the next day, the 17th of September, uh, the UN ambassador was assassinated in Jerusalem by militant Zionists. A four-man team ambushed Bernadette's uh, mortarcade in Jerusalem, killing him and a French UN observer sitting next to him. On October the 15th, Israel launched a series of military operations to drive out the Arab armies and secure the northern and southern borders of Israel. In the north, the Israelis pushed the Syrians out of Galilee. In the south, they secured the Negev Desert and crossed into the Sinai into Egypt. The British, still in ownership of the Suez Canal and having bases in the region, saw this as an action which might destabilize the Egyptian government and threaten their, their interests in the region. So the British warned the Israelis to leave or that they would be forced to take action, and they, and they did, but not before British and Israeli fighter planes had clashed in the skies above the Sinai, which led to the loss of five British Spitfires. By early November, it was clear that the Egyptian army was broken, and the Egyptians reached out to the Jordanians and the Iraqis, insisting that it was time to make peace. The Egyptian army, tired, low of supplies and morale, was in a dangerous position, strung out along the coastal road still. If the Israelis could take the Gaza Strip or destroy the force, it could potentially topple the government in Cairo. The first Arab-Israeli war came to a formal end with the signing of an armistice between Israel and four of the Arab belligerents, Egypt in February 1949, Lebanon in March, Jordan in April, and Syria in July. Iraq refused to sign an armistice and technically remained at war, though no fighting continued. During the war, both sides had paid little heed to the injury and death of civilians. As a result of the fighting in cities and rural villages, many civilians on both sides of the conflict were injured and or killed in the fighting. Though the Haganah c- cautioned its units against harming women and children, acts of violence did occur, occur, especially by those of the IZL and the Stern Gang, who indulged in targeting Palestinian civilians. Palestinian armed bands also attacked and killed uh, Jewish civilians. The Jews, in the end, though, committed far more atrocities than the Arabs. It is true that the rhetoric of the Arabs was far harsher than that of the Jews, though the war afforded them very little possibility to massacre massacre their foes. Nevertheless, it's all speculative, as we will never know how the Arabs would have treated the Jews had they won the war. The Palestinians during the course of the war only committed two large massacres involving 40 workers in in a Haifa oil refinery and 150 captured Haganah POWs, which was halted by the Arab Legion before any further murders could take place. The Arab armies conducted themselves throughout the fighting very respectfully and committed very few atrocities despite capturing a number of POWs and a number of Jewish communities, including East Jerusalem. The IDF, in contrast, unfortunately committed a number of rapes in in Jaffa and Accra and other Palestinian villages. In all, during the year-long struggle, the Jewish forces probably murdered some 800 civilians and POWs. Although unacceptable acts were committed by both sides during the war, for the error, both sides in general, from May 1948 onwards, abided by the Geneva Convention and treated their prisoners reasonably well. 
The Jews suffered between 5,700 to 5,800 dead, one quarter of them civilians, representing about 1% of their population at the time. Of these, 500 were women, 108 who who had served in the the military. The Jews also suffered about 12,000 seriously wounded. Palestinian losses are unknown but believed to be higher. Egyptian losses were some 1,400 with 3,731 seriously wounded. Jordan, Syria, and Iraq suffered several hundred casualties, with Lebanon the least. The war also created 700,000 Palestinian refugees. The war also created a new group of Jewish refugees as well, as five to 600,000 Jews were expelled from their homes in the Middle East. Pogroms and government restrictions placed on the Jews caused these minority populations to leave over the next 20 years. For example, before 1948, there had been a large population of Jews who lived in Iraq and in Baghdad. The Arab governments saw them as fifth potential fifth columnists and Zionists, although the vast majority were not. In conclusion, it doesn't take von Clausewitz to see why the Palestinians lost the war. Contrary to the classic narrative of David and Goliath, the Jews were better prepared to fight, better armed, and more importantly, better organized. As the old saying goes, amateurs study tactics, masters study logistics. Yes, the Arabs had more troops, but larger armies do not always beat smaller armies. This isn't entirely the fault of the Arab armies. They were not prepared for a war, but their politicians and populations didn't want to listen to them. They did the very best job they could do under such circumstances. Where the generals could be taken to task was their inability to organize a coherent plan all the coalition partners could agree upon. As Benjamin Franklin said, those who fail to plan are planning to fail. More importantly, although Israel is always viewed as an American ally, it was really the Soviet arms and support that won the day. Without Czech arms, the Israelis might well have still triumphed with the Palestinians, but arguably they could have lost the war with their Arab neighbors without those arms. Granted, the American government did provide diplomatic recognition and backing, but the U.S. provided little tangible aid to the Jews in winning their independence. The Soviets continued to supply arms to Israel via Czechoslovakia until 1951, despite the Israeli defections of the West in 1950, with the Israeli backing for the U.S. in the Korean War at the U.N. Although the bitterness of the Arab defeat led to a wave of nationalist coups in the 1950s, which made for ready allies for Moscow, who needed arms and support for future wars with Israel. Ventures London and Washington were unwilling to back. Ultimately, for the U.S., the support of Israel succeeded in having a stable democratic ally in the region, which, along with its support for the conservative authoritarian regimes, helped to maintain American policy of potential of political stability and Western access to cheap energy in the region. Israel and the conservative regimes of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf remain the U.S.'s chief allies of the region to this day. The Arab conservative regimes also valued their relationship with the United States as they knew they could leverage their ties with the U.S. to put pressure on Israel. Their displeasure over its support of Israel was also subordinated for their need for American security guarantees, which ensured for the U.S. the desired firewall to communism in the region. Great Britain backed the wrong horse and lost big. She continued to lose influence in the region despite her support for the Arab regimes in the conflict. The Soviet Union and the United States became the dominant players in the region. Although Britain did retain a degree of influence, her ultimate goal of an Arab superstate allied to Britain via the Commonwealth never materialized. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 36, The Early Cold War in the Middle East, The First Arab-Israeli War. 
Don't forget to tune in November the 1st for our next episode as we examine the, the history of the United Nations during the early Cold War. If you want to financially contribute to the show, help provide source material for future episodes, follow us on social media, check out our photos for this episode or past episodes, or email us questions, check out our episode at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. And while there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.